Here it is. From deep inside your radio. Ladies and gentlemen, while war fever spreads in the United States, the, um, the fever that's spreading here in the United Kingdom, whence this broadcast originates this week, again, is um, referendum fever. This Thursday, by, by a week from today, by next week's broadcast, we will know whether Scotland is going to remain part of the United Kingdom. I know it's a, it's a big, sh- who cares, back in the States. And then may, maybe, maybe not. Certainly not in Canada. A lot of Scots up there. But uh, here it is just dominating conversation. And uh, I personally, you know, I don't have a vote, obviously, nor a kilt. The two go together. But uh, I, I sort of lean in favor of Scotland going independent because I think the stamp collectors of the world need a new source of uh, excitement. Meanwhile, over in Ireland, Reg- news of the godly. Reginald Wayne Miller, the founder of... Oh, no, sorry. This is not from Ireland. This is from the good old United States. Reginald Wayne Miller, the founder of Cathedral Bible College with campuses in Myrtle Beach, Florida. North Carolina? Myrtle Beach, wherever it is. I think it's one of the Carolinas, has agreed to plead guilty to four felony charges related to forcing foreign students at his school to work for low or no wages under the threat of deportation if they didn't comply. South Carolina, sorry. Uh, Miller is pleading guilty to two felony charges of visa fraud. He's also pleading guilty to a pair of misdemeanor charges of willful failure to pay minimum wage. It's a minimum wage in South Carolina. All told, he's facing a combined 41 years in prison, more than a million in fines. He's the founder of Cathedral Bible College, ladies and gentlemen. Prosecutors say he included false statements on forms submitted to the federal government, including information about a foreign student's eligibility to study. Investigators with Homeland Security said in a criminal complaint filed earlier this year that he forced foreign students to work sometimes more than 40 hours a week at the Marion South Carolina campus, and at his personal residence for as little as $25 a week, can't, threatening to cancel their visas and send them back to their home countries if they complained. Uh, students at the Bible College told investigators from Homeland Security that the classes at the Bible College, quote, were not real, unquote, and that the main focus of the school is having students work full-time hours. Their living conditions at the college, they told investigators, were substandard, including long periods of time without any hot water, heat, or air conditioning. They also stated that the food provided by the college was expired. It's not clear what will happen to the Bible College. The website has been taken offline and the telephone number isn't working. This is Miller's second run-in with law enforcement. He was charged with lewdness and prostitution in 2006 on a charge that he exposed himself to an undercover police officer in a bathhouse at Myrtle Beach State Park. Cathedral Bible College originally was founded as Tabernacle Bible Institute, Miller hosted the Good Morning Jesus television show during his time with that institute, moved the school to the former Myrtle Air Force Base a couple of decades ago, purchasing property at a reduced rate under a federal program that gave incentives to educational facilities relocating to closed military bases. So he knows he knows how to cut those corners. News of the Godly, ladies and gentlemen. Copyright and feature of this broadcast. And we must now turn to the big news in the United States. And uh, one's mind goes back to a time before Barack Obama was president of the United States, a time when he was uh, given to saying things like this.
He wasn't saying things like that. Here's what he was saying things like. Well, not really what we were looking for. He was given to saying things like this. What I do oppose is a dumb war. So let's, after that awkward moment, uh, let's examine the war we've now entered into. And in case you think it's not a war, John Kerry said it was today on Face the Nation. And then he said, whether or not it's a, you call it a war is a waste of time. Unquote, John Kerry. So, um, you know, forget, for, just forget the Constitution, which requires Congress to declare war. John Kerry declares it on television. And it's, it's, it's a waste of time to even pay attention to that. Kerry was the source of another piece of information about the war this week. Since uh, President Obama went out of his way to uh, emphasize how limited this adventure will be. It's interesting to note that Kerry kind of gave it a different different, uh, twist. In Baghdad this week on Wednesday, he raised the possibility that U.S. troops might, might be, might be committed to ground operations in Iraq. The first hedging by an administration official on President Obama's pledge that there will be no U.S. boots on the ground, which, of course, there already are. Trainers and advisors wear boots. Unless they're trainers and advisors, they're from the flip-flop corps. Kerry... Reiterating, Obama has said no U.S. combat troops would be, would, would be deployed to fight the IS in Iraq. Then added, quote, unless obviously something very, very dramatic changes, unquote. Well, that couldn't happen. Lee Hamilton, who used to uh, chair the Foreign Affairs and Intelligence Committees in the House and a Democrat, called that, a loophole a mile wide. The White House refused to comment. So it's a, it's a war, or maybe it's not a war. It may involve ground troops. If something dramatic happens, you know, like if uh, House of Cards just comes back for another season. But is it dumb? Is it a dumb war? Because, as you know, President Obama hates dumb wars. When, at about the same time, in 2002, President Bush gathered Congress to authorize the use of force in Iraq. Nutty how the timing is rhyming. Um, Sometime later, we learned that, despite all that, the United States had a severe shortage in its diplomatic uh, corps, going all the way up through the State Department, of people who spoke Arabic language of Iraq. So whatever we knew... Whatever our officials knew, they knew it from somebody who translated it into English. So to figure out whether this is a dumb war, one might want to ask, has that been fixed? I haven't heard anybody ask that yet. Oh, I just heard me ask it. But And then, of course, there, uh, uh, President Obama had meetings this week with uh, several groups of thinkers, foreign policy experts, journalists, uh, meetings that were long and discursive and off the record, which is why they all ran to the New York Times to, dis- to disclose what happened during the meetings, because they weren't supposed to, of course. Now, nobody 
wanted them to do that. Uh, but nobody brought up, or at least according to the Times account, nobody brought up the fact that Syria has a four-way, at least a four-way civil war going on that we will now be kind of putting our finger on uh, our thumb on the scale at some point. Um, whatever we do is going to help. Whatever Whoever we help is going to be somebody we didn't like some time ago. Uh, in the same way that over in Iraq, the uh, village or town which was uh, retaken by Iraqi forces from the IS, Amerli, among the uh, forces, the Iraqi forces that helped retake that town, were Shiite militias. The same Shiite militias we fought against in 2007 and 8, the Badr Corps. Remember them? Remember Muqtada al-Sadr? He was a bad guy. Now, the good thing about the bad guys over there is that uh, they change alliances the way we change underwear, or the, at least with the frequency with which, they, you know, it's like, okay, you'll be, you'll be our guy this week. But uh, do we? Maybe we do. And the Free Syrian Army over dumb, dumb war, you think? The helping the is the Shiite militias. We fought against them because they were aided by Iran. Over in Syria, as I say, the Free Syrian Army, they're the moderates, they're our friends, they're the ones John McCain wants to arm. And now Barack Obama does too. There are reports. I wouldn't bet my house on them, but there are reports. Uh, one was aired on CNN, for what that's worth this week, that the Free Syrian Army were the ones who originally captured journal, American journalist Sotloff and sold him to the IS. Those are, our, those are the people we want to help in Syria. Dumb war. Uh, we have a, we're building a coalition again. Remember the coalition of the willing? Uh, the coalition seems... A little unwilling this time, according to the latest reports, Turkey and Egypt aren't that excited. And even if we get Egypt on board, Egypt, according to uh, reports this week on Al Jazeera, which does not like Egypt, or does not like Egypt's current government, is uh, detaining thousands in jails that are redolent with torture. If if something could be redolent with torture, I don't know, that may be. A misuse of the fine English language. But I'm going to learn to speak Arabic, so I'll be one of those guys. Anyway, dumb war or smart war? The, the war in Afghanistan with the smart war. That's the one we're, uh, we're winning now. That's how smart it is. Dumb war or smart war, ladies and gentlemen, you decide. Hello, welcome to the show.
daddy, don't you worry about a thing. She's all mine and I'm so glad. She's the best woman I ever had. From London, England, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And this week, ladies and gentlemen, um, the a, a giant in the New Orleans music scene who owned the uh, recording studio and engineered um, the recordings in that in those studios, um, which gave birth to most of the classic New Orleans rhythm and blues hits. Cosmo Matassa passed away. His uh, family owned the uh, neighborhood grocery store in uh, the neighborhood in which I live in New Orleans, and uh, I know those folks. So my um, my condolences on the passing of Cosmo Matassa, and and the music, uh, a lot of the music on today's program will uh, be music that went through the knobs <laughs> of uh, Cosmo Matassa's studio. And now, ladies and gentlemen... News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Ebersall Jr. Tokyo's 2020 Summer Olympics were meant to be compact, on budget, and on time. But now, as the Japanese capital moves to leap from bid to building a year after winning the Games, the optimism is ebbing. This, according to Reuters. The National Stadium, built when Japan hosted the Olympics in 1964, symbolizes the woes. Set to be demolished two months ago for a sleek new venue, it stands empty. Its seats ripped out, waiting for a deal to bring the wrecking ball. The city won the games by emphasizing Japan's organizational strengths and $4.5 billion in the bank. Now, the Olympics face ballooning costs, angry environmentalists, and a failing vision of a cozy downtown event. There was a sense in the IOC with the rivals we had and evidence of problems for the games in Sochi and Rio, there was a sense they wanted the Olympics held by a place that had its act together, said Hitoshi Sakai, chief executive of a Japanese think tank. Instead, even demolition of the national stadium has gone through two rounds of failed bidding. Central to Tokyo's promises were that nearly all the competition venues would be within five miles of the Olympic Village. But construction and labor costs have soared due to the rebuilding after the tsunami and a rise in the consumption tax. That was not factored into budgets. Planners allotted $1.5 billion for venues in the bid, but now estimate more than that estimate more than doubled late last year after recalculations. 
Budget worries may mean plans for a new basketball arena are dropped, and the competition may be redirected 15 miles outside Tokyo to an existing venue. The yacht races may have to move some 17 miles to the east because the original venue is within the approach zone to Haneda Airport, and helicopters need to fly above the yacht races to shoot them for television. International sporting federations may less, be less than pleased by those changes. We've always been impressed by the proposals for sailing, in particular the compact nature of the venue and the close proximity to the other sports venues in the Olympic Village, says the head of the International Sailing Federation. Sakai says organizers have to stick to their pledges. Quote, no matter how much it ends up costing, it's a public international promise to hold a compact Olympics. Japan has to keep its promises. You don't want to disappoint the International Olympic Committee. The Olympics. It's a movement. And we all need one. Every day. Can you feel the grandeur and the glory? Uh, by the way, this week uh, in, in uh, the Sunday edition of the ton- uh, Sunday Times, the Sunday edition, of the, the Sunday edition of the Times newspaper in London, owned by Rupert Murdoch, uh, a story came out that officials of the um, international soccer ruling body, FIFA, hey FIFA, had uh, accepted expensive gift wristwatches while they were holding the World Cup in uh, Rio. But don't worry. Nothing like that's going to happen to members of the International Olympic Committee because they... Now, ladies and gentlemen, a secret location among the vineyards at California's central coast is a site of a plot of genetically engineered corn producing proteins for industrial and pharmaceutical uses, including a possible vaccine for hepatitis B. It's growing with federal approval 100 feet from a steelhead stream in San Luis Obispo County in designated critical habitat for a threatened frog. Agriculture director, uh, Agricultural Department inspectors have reported two incidents at the site, including conventional corn sprouting in what was supposed to be a fallow zone. The findings don't rise to the level of a fine or even a formal notice of noncompliance for the company that planted it, Applied Biotechnology. Details of its inspections and hundreds of other field trials with GMO, genetically modified plants, were obtained by Hearst newspapers, of all things, under freedom of information laws. The inspection reports and other agriculture department records present a picture of vast, swiftly expanding outdoor experimentation and industry-friendly oversight of those experiments. The founder and president of Applied Biotechnology, John Howard, previously founded another company that was permanently banned from trials of GMOs after creating such contaminated messes in the Midwest that a half million bushels of soybeans 
and more than 150 acres of corn had to be destroyed. But since 2009, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has approved his new company's little-known plantings with strict limits. The outdoor tests are at the leading edge of a technological revolution based on reordering the building blocks of life. Documents show how the obscure Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, APHIS, part of the Ag Department, takes an industry-friendly approach in seeking to prevent contamination or economic harm in the trials. Minimal penalties, says Hearst Newspapers. Monsanto received at least 35 notices of noncompliance in the last three years, more than any company. They paid a civil penalty for accidentally ginning experimental cotton in Texas two years earlier, an error that led to unapproved cotton seed meal and hulls being consumed by Texas livestock and exported to Mexico for animal feed. Monsanto blamed human error. I'd blame animal error myself, but I'm not Monsanto. Dozens of times heavy rains washed out or otherwise damaged test plots, raising the specter of unwanted dispersal of GMOs. Animals pose other threats. Blame the animals. Birds, insects, and larger animals don't distinguish between gene-altered crops and conventional varieties. Despite or besides threatening the environment, escaped or unapproved crops can generate economic problems, as did last year's discovery of wheat engineered to resist Roundup. The herbicide-tolerant wheat on an Oregon farm had been tested before by Monsanto in 16 states before the company suspended its trials. Within days after the discovery, Japan, Korea, and Taiwan suspended imports of certain wheat varieties from the Pacific Northwest out of fear of contamination. Monsanto says the rogue wheat might have resulted from sabotage or sabotage. The Agriculture Department office, APHIS, has investigated but has yet to report its findings. Well, industry-friendly oversight seems to be a good idea, doesn't it? Where uh, possible contamination of food crops is concerned. Or not. Who knows? Maybe it's just a dumb war. And now, ladies and gentlemen. Once I had a secret that lived within the heart of me. All too soon my secret became impatient to be free. Secrets, no secrets anymore. Well, some secrets trying to get free, but not quite. Pictures and footage of the alleged 20th hijacker, Mohammed al Qatani, must remain under wraps because they would be, quote, singularly susceptible to use by extremist groups to incite anti American hostility according to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals this week. Katani was turned back from an Orlando airport weeks before the 9-11 attack sent back to his native Saudi Arabia. He surfaced at the Afghanistan border a few months after 9-11, where Pakistan forces captured and transferred him to U.S. custody. He became one of Guantanamo's first prisoners two months later, remaining there for six years before he was charged. In 2008, the then-convening authority at Guantanamo Susan, Judge Susan Crawford, dropped his prosecution because she found that his brutal interrogation in custody, quote, met the legal definition of torture, unquote. The T-word. She spoke the T-word. I wonder, has that been... A, oh, I, the president has investigated that and found 
No. The Center for Constitutional Rights, which represents Katani and other Gitmo detainees, filed a Freedom of Information Act request more than four years ago for tape footage and photographs of his interrogations. CIA refused to confirm or deny the existence of the images, but the FBI and the Department of Defense identified six photographs and 53 videotapes of Katani, refusing to release them under the classification exception. One video captured a forced cell extraction. Jimmy, are you going to come here? And two depict intelligence debriefings. That sounds benign. U.S. District Judge Naomi Buckwald refused to release the images because extremist groups could use them as propaganda to provoke attacks against U.S. troops. The appellate court unanimously agreed, stating that Katani's unique case requires secrecy. So, can't see those because it might upset extremists and make them attack U.S. troops. What, what, what would make them attack the U.S. troops? What would, what would it, it, it arouse them so much, do you think? Really? Don't worry your pretty little head about it. You'll never know. London, this is Le Show, and now, ladies and gentlemen. He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He peeks at no stoops. He's an inspector general. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. News of inspectors general, ladies and gentlemen. A lot of them this week. A lot of stuff inspectors general have been finding that might... uh, might amuse you. Billions of dollars, for example, in direct USA to the Afghan army and police have been poorly tracked. No. Really? Well, that's a smart war. How could... Leaving no way to verify if the money was spent as intended. This according to a new report from the Department of Defense's Inspector General. The DOD provided $3.3 billion in such aid between October 2010 and 2013. Yet Afghanistan's government, quote, lacked basic controls to provide reasonable assurance that it appropriately spent the money. Not only that, the U.S. agency responsible for supporting Afghan security forces hasn't penalized the local government for poor oversight or improper handling of the funds. Well, why would they? It's a smart war. 
Because of the continuing lack of accountability, $13 billion that the Defense Department plans to provide Afghan security forces between 2015 and 2019, quote, may be subject to wasteful spending and abuse, the DOD IG warned. Already as much as $1.5 billion in U.S. aid sent between December 2012 and December 2013 cannot be accounted for because it was commingled with other revenues and government bank accounts. The Afghan government also spent more than $82 million in Pentagon funds on unapproved items, including Afghan armed forces salaries, overtime, and travel without any penalty. The uh, report also raised new concerns about an old problem in the Pentagon's Afghan aid program, the disbursement of funds to ghost workers. Ooh, ghost workers. That sounds like a new ride. It is. Three years ago, the special... Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction first complained that the Afghan Interior Ministry couldn't accurately say how many people worked for the National Police, and as a result, there was limited assurance that only those actually working were receiving paychecks coming out of foreign aid funds. In January of this year, the same Inspector General, the same guy holding the same office, a new guy, reiterated those concerns in a letter to the Commanding General The U.S. may be unwittingly helping to pay the salaries of non-existent members of the Afghan National Police, he wrote. Last week's DOD Inspector General report makes clear that these problems are still not under control. It notes that payments for security forces salaries stayed the same in key areas even after many employees left. Their salaries live on long after they did. The Department of Homeland Security spent at least $35 million in 2012 on vehicles the agency rarely used. That makes you safer. Those are, those are safety vehicles. The DHS Inspector General's office said in a report that the department lacks a centralized management system for its 56,000 owned and leased vehicles, the second largest such fleet in the federal government. DHS cannot ensure its vehicle fleet composition is cost-efficient, complies with requirements of the department and has the correct number of motor vehicles to accomplish its mission. Aside from that, Mrs. Lincoln, they're doing just fine with the vehicles. The Pentagon's inspector general also found numerous quality control problems during an investigation of the troubled kill vehicle, part of missile defense. Trouble with the kill vehicle, you see. In the report, the Pentagon's inspector general said quality standards were not met in 48 specific areas involving issues that range from software testing, supply chain requirements, and management of design changes that make the kill vehicle susceptible to quality assurance failures. You don't want a quality assurance failure in your kill vehicle. I'm just saying that off the top of my head. I'm I'm no expert, but the U.S. Missile Defense Agency agreed with the concerns of the DOD ID, and has already moved to address 44 of the 48 issues as a part of a larger drive to improve quality controls. The um, system was deployed in 2004 before it completed testing. Always a good idea. This, is, this was done to counter what the Bush administration identified as a looming North Korean missile threat. Oh, I'm scared now. A combination of cost constraints and failure-driven program restructures has kept the program in a state of change. Schedule and cost priorities drove a culture of use-as-is, leaving the kill vehicle 
as a manufacturing challenge. Well, that's nicely worded from the Inspector General. With more than 1,800 unique parts, 10,000 pages of work instructions, and 130,000 process steps, kill vehicle repairs and refurbishments are considered by the program to be costly and problematic and make it susceptible to quality assurance failures. 15 major and 25 minor quality problems with Raytheon's handling of the program, including one case where a manufacturing operation had to be stopped because the parts kit included a screw without threads. Again, I'm no expert, but in my book, that's a nail. The Department of Homeland Security Inspector General came up with another report also. That department failed to assess the supplies it needed to deal with a potential pandemic and now has expired stockpiles, including medications, respirators, and bottle and, and hand sanitizers. The department brought, bought 16 million surgical masks and 350,000 white coverall suits without establishing the need for them, according to the Inspector General's report, which included photographs of stacks of unopened boxes piled high in a storeroom. 81% of DHS's supply of almost 300,000 dose, 300, doses of antiviral medication will expire soon, according to the report. DHS also did, did not keep track of its supplies or where they were kept. It's Homeland Security, ladies and gentlemen, keeping you safe. As a result, the department has no assurance it has sufficient personal protective equipment and antiviral medical countermeasures for a pandemic. This comes as we're preparing to help Africa deal with Ebola. So trust us, Africa. DHS spent $47 million for a potential pandemic on preparedness equipment, medication, research, and exercises. The stock of pandemic preparedness equipment includes 200,000 respirators that are past the five-year guaranteed usability date from the manufacturer. And 84% of the department's almost 5,000 bottles of hand sanitizers were expired some by up to four years. And it's not going to do a lot of ha- uh, sanitizing. Most states, including Ohio, that contribute runoff to rivers that eventually reach the Gulf of Mexico do not have strategies to keep phosphorus and nitrogen from reaching those waterways, a key strategy in helping to prevent the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico from continuing or expanding. That's according to the EPA's inspector general. The office says few states have specific reduction targets or timelines to keep those elements basically coming from fertilizer runoff from Midwest farms out of their waterways. And finally, dozens of Justice Department officials ranging from FBI special agents and prison wardens to high-level federal prosecutors have escaped prosecution or firing despite findings of misconduct by the department's own internal watchdog. Most of the names of the investigated officials, even the highest ranking, remain under wraps, but documents obtained under Freedom of Information Act by McClatchy newspapers revealed for the first time a startling array of alleged transgressions uncovered by the Justice Department's Inspector General. Investigators concluded an assistant U.S. attorney lacked candor when interviewed by FBI agents investigating her husband's, quote, embezzlement activities. A U.S. attorney violated federal laws and regulations by accepting a partially paid trip to a foreign country by a nonprofit organization. Given a written admonishment, ordered to reimburse, but prosecution was declined. 
The FBI supervisory special agents accepted free tickets to the NBA All-Star Game and gave them to family members. One agent lied under oath about his actions. who was found to have misused government resources to, quote, engage in extramarital affairs with three women. Well, what better use of governmental resources? One might ask. The agent resigned. Neither was The other was suspended. Neither was prosecuted. An FBI assistant special agent in charge sexually harassed female subordinates, retaliated against a female special agent who refused to have a relationship with him, and used his FBI-issued BlackBerry to pursue romantic relationships with 17 FBI employees, nine of them direct subordinates, as well as 29 other women. The FBI had issued an undisclosed disciplinary action. No charges were brought. In 27 cases, the inspector general identified evidence of possible criminal wrongdoing, but no one was prosecuted. Accountability, ladies and gentlemen, it's not just for breakfast anymore. News of Inspectors General, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Now, you may remember about uh, nine years ago, nine years and a couple of weeks ago, the mayor of New Orleans vaulted to national prominence as uh, his city was reeling under floodwaters. Ray Nagin took to the airwaves to demand that the federal government make a more expeditious response, although that wasn't quite the language he used. Uh, the comments he made at the time, some of them profane, even became uh, part of a, a novelty item called the mayor in your pocket, where you could press a little button and any one of his more outraged comments would be uh, played back for you. I have two of them. Uh, his complaint was based uh, legitimately on the fact that he had been told the Army Corps of Engineers was uh, going to be sandbagging the areas where the breaches had occurred, and yet nothing was happening. The Army Corps of Engineers, in fact, admitted on Wednesday of the week of the flooding that they were just filling the sandbags at that time. Mayor Nagin became famous for that and then became famous shortly thereafter for pledging that New Orleans would remain, in his words, on a, in a speech on Martin Luther King Day, quote, a chocolate city, unquote. He's famous for other stuff these days. He's been convicted. And this week he began serving a uh, sentence in, um, actually he's been a 10-year prison sentence. He began serving it this week in uh, Texarkana, Texas, in a federal facility. He was convicted of bribery, wire fraud, money laundering, filing false tax returns, and conspiring to defraud the public of his honest services as an elected official. His uh, part of that was a, a scheme that he had. He set up a business called Stone Age, which built, uh, which uh, sold granite sink uh, countertops. Sorry, for kitchen, and uh, got a sweetheart deal to get those uh, Stone Age countertops distributed through uh, certain big box stores in uh, New Orleans in exchange for. Uh, some city contracts, you know, some things. There were, um, there were other misdeeds. There was a boat that uh, he was allowed to uh, take trips on, which turned out to be owned by somebody who had city contracts. The mayor 
feigned ignorance of uh, that little detail, which kind of turned out to be costly. It all turned out to be costly. U.S. District Judge Ginger Berrigan this week ruled that Nagin's financial position qualifies him for a public defender. Nagin and his family are now near penniless and deeply in debt, according to a report he filled out and signed under penalty of perjury. So it's got to be true. He owes $176,000 on his townhouse in Frisco, Texas, which is in foreclosure. He's underwater on the note for his car, a 2010 Ford Fusion. He, his wife and his daughter live on food stamps and about $500 in gifts and donations from friends and family. His legal defense fund only has $30 in it the last time he checked. The document doesn't state how much it raised or paid out. He's been unemployed since he left office, according to the document that he submitted. And he has, according to that document, a total in the bank right now of $23.65. You know, I got real famous while my city was dying. I was on the TV, cursing and decrying. Then the feds came around, I started jiving and lying. Some red lines were crossed at a serious cost. Now my fortunes are lost, I'm down to 2365. It's all that's keeping my ass alive. Can't defend myself, no way I survive. I'm just 2365. 2365. My kid makes some bank A few city contracts Some guys in the tank As for who on the boat My mind was a blank At least that's what I said But the trail of the crumbs of the bread Left my alibi for dead I downed a twin That's the nut on which I try to thrive. I've got an app you can follow me live for just twenty three sixty five. Twenty three sixty five. Texarkana Jail, a real chocolate city. Fudge don't come in the mail. Used to run some cable TV, now food stamps by my kale. My life had an arc from a walk in the park. 
gentlemen, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. A senior UK British police officer has apologized to Sir Cliff Richard for the handling of the raid on his home over an historic, that is to say, long ago sexual abuse allegation. Chief Constable David Crompton was accused of sheer incompetence for allowing the BBC to film shots of the police at the singer's flat. And he's acknowledged that the matter was dealt with in an, in an appropriate fashion. He said, we had a job to do, but I apologize to Sir Cliff if we were insensitive about the way we did that. He has not been arrested or charged. He denies any wrongdoing, does Cliff. An offensive lineman for the Citadel college football team faces suspension after admitting to, quote, going for knees in a game in which several Florida State defensive linemen were injured. Senior Victor Hill wrote the uh, comments section of a story in the Charleston Post and Courier website, quote, I played in the game last night and also contributed to the injury list, and that was just the mindset going into the game. Me and my offensive line brothers preached to each other all week that we, we would be going for knees from the first play to the last play. We saw it as if they won't respect us for blocking them, then we'll make them respect us for cutting them. The comments were quickly deleted, but wound up on message boards. Hill issued an apology shortly afterwards. I would like to sincerely apologize for my statements this morning. I'm both embarrassed and ashamed of my comments. They reflect in no way, shape, or form how I'm taught or coached to perform. I'm truly sorry for my immature comments that were made out of frustration. It was senseless on my part, and I will accept the consequences for my actions and hope to grow from the experience moving forward. I apologize to Coach Jimbo Fisher, his players, and the FSU fans for my negative remarks. Unquote. 
Yeah, he wrote that. Cardinal Sean Brady, who was criticized over his handling of abuse scandal, stepped down as leader of the Irish Catholic Church this week with an emotional plea for forgiveness. I need to say sorry and to ask forgiveness, and I do so again today, Brady told the faithful in a mass in Armagh. He played a key role in the peace process after being appointed 18 years ago. He tendered his resignation to the Vatican after turning 75, the normal retirement age for senior clergy. His years as leader of the Irish Church coincided with a series of damning revelations of widespread clerical sex abuse. He became directly involved in accusations that he mishandled child abuse allegations during an investigation into notorious pedophile Father Brendan Smith. A television documentary revealed Brady did not act when given the names of five children abused by Smith. Brady subsequently issued a public apology to the victims, but at that time had refused to step down. Carolina, another football apology. Carolina Panthers kicker Graham Gano called a Bethune-Cookman University trombonist this week to apologize for shoving the musician during the halftime show at the Tampa Buccaneers, Tampa Bay Buccaneers game. Violence in football? Really? Then some uh, fast food apology, ladies, apologies, ladies and gentlemen. DiGiorno Pizza, DiGiorno, DiGiorno Pizza apologized profusely for inadvertently using the domestic violence awareness hashtag why I stayed to sell pizza. The why I stayed hashtag is generally used to refer to domestic violence awareness. The tweet said, why I stayed, you had pizza. DiGiorno later took down the tweet. In damage control mode, it apologized profusely, calling it a horrible and careless mistake. The chain said in multiple tweets that the person responsible didn't read what the hashtag was about before posting. Quote, I am so sorry about this. I take full responsibility for not checking the hashtag before tweeting. DiGiorno tweeted, I would never make light of such a serious topic intentionally. I apologize and feel horrible this happened. I'm so sorry, said the chain in another tweet, raising the question, who's the I? And Tim Hortons, soon to be part of Burger King, has apologized, it's a Canadian fast food chain, has apologized to a breastfeeding mother who was told to cover up at the local coffee shop. Megan Irvine, who runs a local breastfeeding support group, said Stacy Kennelly of North Bay, Ontario, was traveling through the Tweed area in Ontario on Labor Day weekend and nursing her child while waiting in line at Tim Hortons. A female supervisor came over to her and said, I have to ask you to cover up while you're nursing. The mother knew her rights and said no. Tim Hortons later apologized. A yoga studio in Arlington, Virginia, apologized for a September 11th Patriot Day discount in a tweet that has been deleted, Bikram Yoga offered a 9-11 equals 20% discount. The studio then issued multiple apologies, mixed in with a tweet on, well, mixed in with other tweets on other material. Bikram Yoga also deleted the tweets but continued to apologize for the badly worded promotion. Scientology is under fire for using the name of Anzac, which is a legend in Australia and New Zealand uh, for military exploits. To raise money, the uh, Veterans Organization in Australia has branded the campaign a disgrace. The Department of Veterans Affairs has now waited in launching an investigation. Scientology has apologized. The term was not used for trade purposes, but for internal use only. The church in Australia and New Zealand recognizes the historic importance of ANZAC. We use this term in the spirit of cooperation between the two countries for an internal event. We meant no disrespect to anyone. We have the utmost respect for the meaning of ANZAC and would not seek to denigrate what it represents if we have offended anyone. We apologize. And if apology, ladies and gentlemen. And finally, 
down under. A suitcase containing plastic explosive was accidentally left at Sydney, Australia Airport for three weeks by the federal police in a serious training blunder. The AFP released a statement apologizing for mistakenly leaving a training device at the airport containing 230 grams of plastic explosive in an unclaimed suitcase during a dog training exercise. The AFP said the device was not live, but the admission is an embarrassment for the force and follows repeated indications that the terror alert level in Australia is going to go up. The mistake was not discovered until September 9th when a woman traveling through Sydney Airport discovered the device. The case was offered as a replacement bag when her own luggage was damaged. Sydney Airport Commander Wayne Buckhorn apologized for the incident. The AFP takes this error seriously, and the canine instructor who inadvertently left the device behind has been identified and will be the subject of a formal professional standards investigation. Oh, and the San Francisco 49ers suspended broadcaster Ted Robinson for two games Wednesday for comments he made about the Ray Rice domestic violence case. Robinson issued a statement. I want to unconditionally apologize for my comments. As a professional communicator, I'm responsible for my words. They were careless and does not reflect my true feelings about domestic violence. I understand the cycle of violence. cycle of abuse keeps people in unhealthy relationships. No blame or responsibility for domestic violence should ever be placed on a victim. And you know he wrote that apology. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. saying farewell also this week to the great uh, Los Angeles area band leader arranger Gerald Wilson that will conclude this week's edition of the show the program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe the USN 440 cable system in Japan around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant, WBCQ The Planet, 7.490 megahertz shortwave. On the Mighty 104 in Berlin, around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archive whenever you want at harryshearer.com and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone through stitcher.com and available as a free podcast, even though there's no more iPod at WWNO.org. Sideshow Network. SoundCloud. And iTunes. Also available. No, that's that's it. That's, that's all the availability. Better be just like... 
just like it being a smart war if you'd agree to join with me then, would you? Alrighty. Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Tip of the show, Chef to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Hawaii desk. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead, Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans, and Adrian Bodnam at Global Radio in London with help on today's broadcast. The email address for today's, well, for this broadcast and the playlist of the music heard here on, you can find them at harryshear.com along with Cars I Talk t-shirts. And I'm on Twitter, at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from London. Thank you.